HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRM podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host, Krishnendu Ray. Gastronomica's spring issue, which is 23.1, is now available online. Uh, Join us this month as we talk about figs, fashion, craft, and explore histories of chile eating and candy making. My guest this week is Victor Valle. Victor is an emeritus professor at Cal Poly Uh, San Luis Obispo, and a former Los Angeles Times Pulitzer Prize winner. He writes about food, urbanism, and literature. He's the author of, in this recent issue of Gastronomica, uh, a piece called Towards the Poetics of Chile in Another Mexico, uh, published most recently. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Victor. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, can you share a little with our listeners about yourself, where you are today, and what are you a professor of? Okay, I live in San Luis Obispo, uh, or San Luis Obispo, uh, which is on the coast of uh, Central California, kind of midway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And uh, I taught and teach occasionally uh, classes in ethnic studies, which basically cultural studies. And uh, also garden, cook, a lot of bicycle riding. So how did this piece, uh, A Poetics of Chile, come about? Many years ago, uh, back in 1995, I was talking to my book editor, uh, Don Davis. I think she's now the uh, editor-in-chief of uh, uh, Bon Appetit. At that time, she was a book editor with the New Press. And she asked me what my next book would be, and I said, sort of innocently, oh, I'll write something about the aesthetics of Mexican cuisine. I realized that, that was <laughs> I wasn't prepared to do that, uh, but I didn't forget the question. And eventually, you know, I wrote other books, I was doing other projects, but eventually I realized that I needed to decolonize my question. Uh, I was sort of using the wrong framework for 
asking that question, and that's what my next book is going to be about. But uh, the article you're reading is just focusing on the question of metaphor. How do they work, uh, and how are they performed, and how do they relate to the literary text? That's lovely, uh, Victor. I really enjoyed it, and also the uh, the visual material that you have some gorgeous pictures, and we'll take an uh, opportunity to talk about it. You have three sections in the piece, um, and the first part is called uh, Immersive uh, Sensory Memories. Um, so let's start with that. What are some of those immersive sensory memories? I think that's the section where you talk about your mother, your grandmother, and two of your uncles. What I wanted to do was ask myself, I, I was just trying to test whether this article was even, or the book was even feasible. And I couldn't find a clear starting point. Uh, but I also knew, knew that I had a lot of cooking and ranching knowledge in my family. So I just sort of said, well, let's just remember it all and see what shows up and see, you know, see what is useful. If it's, if it leads me to something to, to what you would call a heuristic, uh, an interpretive point of view. And uh, eventually years later, when I was at Radcliffe, I presented this article sort of going over those memories and the people responded. Uh, some of the memories uh, that I, in that uh, chapter have to do with uh the ranching knowledge I inherited that was around me, uh, basically my uh, grandfather, my uncles, uh, raising animals on the side. They were dairy workers or they owned dairies. And everybody would sort of ask, can you, can you raise this goat for me or this lamb for me? Or can you separate out a, a calf for me? And then they would have parties, weddings, christenings. Uh, that was sort of a thing that was going on, which meant that there were all these occasions where uh, people would organize these barbacoas, these, you know, basically make these pit ovens where they would cook uh, uh, an animal, uh, usually goat, because that was that was sort of the preferred choice of the people from Western Mexico for making barbacoa, the, the chivo. But we also did lamb and beef. And sometimes they mixed <laughs> uh, 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 goat with pork. Uh, my uncle would do that in Santa Barbara. So it was kind of an ongoing practice. And that was one of the things that I, be I began to think about. My mother was a really another strong influence, an excellent cook. Uh, she could cook, uh, you know, uh, what happened was my parents lived in uh, Mexico for a period when they were just married in Tijuana. So she was a really quick study. So they ran a tortilleria, a tortilla store, or a factory, and a and a butcher shop too. And during that time, uh, she had uh, these women from Yucatan who were the women who were the tortilleras. This is before industrial machine tortilla making. And so she learned a lot. She learned sort of the the northern Baja cuisine, very seafood forward. She learned from my father's family, uh, you know, uh, they were from uh, Guadalajara and they had a long history of cooking. One of the things that would come out later is that uh, uh, my grandmother had saved uh, uh, several generations of recipes from her, uh, her relatives, female relatives in Guadalajara, going back to the 1860s. And then my mother had also, you know, when she was at Downey High School, uh, you know, in Southern California, she also learned American cookery. So, and she was uh, always, even till the to her last days, she was always curious and learning other kinds of cooking. My wife is Mexican Chinese, and her father was a Cantonese 
excellent Cantonese cook, and she, she loved uh, Cantonese food. So she was always trying to experiment with things, not very well sometimes, but she was a, just a very quick study when it came to uh, cuisine. So by the time I was growing up, I didn't know any of this. I was just a kid growing up. All these kinds of things were going on in our household. So uh, that's what I was sort of trying to relate to the reader that, you know, often ordinary people know a lot, even if they don't have formal degrees. And that's sort of been an issue for uh, Mexican communities, you know, that historically have you know, lower rates of academic achievement. But that doesn't mean they don't know what they're talking about. And that's one of the things I wanted to sort of let the reader know. But I also I was trying to give the sense of being in something and not trying to uh, uh, filter out something in, in advance, you know, to basically said you're in this world, and it's which is another way of doing journalism. Basically, I was trying to change the you know the the paradigm of how we're supposed to do journalism, and I was purposely going against that tendency to tell the reader, "I'm holding your hand. This is where you are." Instead, I wanted to just to give the reader the sense that I went through of being immersed in something and just. Going into something with the not knowing exactly where you're going to end up. And that was what I wanted to do. Okay, Victor. Uh, uh, the second section of your piece talks about neuroscience and aesthetic philosophy. Uh, why these two domains? Uh, what are they saying to each other? This is a really interesting question. When I went to Radcliffe in 2012, 2013, that was sort of a lot of the discussion that was going on then. Uh, the way I use it, and I and I got to speak to uh, people and sort of the leading scientists at that time. And one of the things that was interesting is that they were using uh, Chile, uh, you know, it's it's neurochemistry to theorize to uh, the nervous system to make new insights into the way the brain works and the way nerves work. Since then, there's been, you know, I think a, a last year's Nobel Prize uh, was won by two uh, California scientists on that very question. So at that time, they weren't just interested in the, the medical applications. They were actually using it to uh, gain new insights into the way into our the neurochemistry of the brain as a model, as a theoretical model, let's say. So the, I was at there at a good time. Now, the way I'm using it is I'm sort of, uh, in order to sort of decolonize aesthetics, I'm going back to aesthesis, uh, what Walter Mignolo calls aesthesis, or which is an old idea too. Basically, you know, uh, the way art works is that we are interpreting sensation, pleasurable sensation, beautiful things, uh, also uh, 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 uncomfortable experiences, all kinds of sensations, let's say. Well, that's aesthesis. So I'm going back to that level and trying to reinterpret it again, uh, but getting rid of some of the assumptions of what is beautiful in Western art and uh, looking at it from a fresh point of view. So that's what I was doing, sort of consciously and unconsciously. Uh, and so my book goes into that in much more detail as to how two different uh, societies, cultures can have different ontologies. In other words, they map themselves onto the material world in different ways. And so uh, what I eventually learned is that, uh, you know, Western art theory wasn't quite ready to deal with some of the issues 
that are present in uh, native cultures of the Western Hemisphere. The people were writing books on eco-aesthetics, but they weren't using uh, resources and text and understandings from the Western Hemisphere, from the native peoples of the Western Hemisphere, or even Asia that much. And I said, well, this is not going to work, especially since there's such a huge body of knowledge in the Western Hemisphere from native peoples who talk about Chile, for example, uh, in my book, it goes into great detail that the uh, Nahua people of central Mexico had this whole very sophisticated grading system of talking about how you measure intensity, intensities of piquancy. And there was all this very uh, interesting knowledge about that uh, and also in how they understood the plant to be uh, uh, totally related to human beings. In other words, they had a, a, a relational ontology where there is no strict division between humans and plants. Uh, the Raramuri of, uh, of northern western Chihuahua, they described Chile, the wild Chile, uh, or Chiltepin, or uh, Chiltepin, as just another Raramuri. In other words, they see no difference between human life forms and non-human life forms. That's a huge ontological difference uh, of how we map the world and how we, uh, how we understand it, how we interpret the sensations from that world. So that was, you know, uh, so going back to the neuroscience in a sort of interesting way allows me to start again. To, and what's also what I also learned is that the uh, when I was reading uh, and interpreting, uh, you know, this Mexica story about a chili vendor, and it's a it's a Aztec or Mexica retelling of a Toltec story that probably goes back to the 800 AD. <laughs> this is really old. In that story. They're talking about a chili vendor, and, and in that process, they very clearly as, uh, associate chili with heat, with fire. Uh, that the, the, the metaphors, there's a series of metaphors contained one within the other within the other, in which th there's no mistake there. They have a system of coding chili as heat, and they're making that very clear. And I go, oh, this is very pragmatic, very empirical, in fact, you could say. So I said, well... Let's just go with that because they're already, and as I would go on and read and read more other sources, interview people, that that sort of interpretation of Chile of heat stood up. You know, it was basically, uh, it, it sort of enmeshed with uh, neuroscience because what's happening uh, with uh, what it called a TRVP1, that's the, the, the receptor uh, that detects Chile as heat, that's nested in, in each of our taste buds. Well, that receptor uh, is being fooled by the neurochemistry of chili. Chili is making our bodies think that we're at, uh, that every time you get that pinging, tinging sensation, basically the nerve is saying 106 degrees Fahrenheit, 106 degrees Fahrenheit, which is basically like you have a high fever and the body is doing that. So I said, hmm, let's start again from this, from, from uh, these two these two ways of interpreting the sensation for, from a pre-Hispanic point of view and from the latest neuroscience. So that's this question of aesthesis, going back to sensation and starting again and, and, and saying, well, what if we interpreted this from a relational ontology, you know, from a, a relational point of view? Uh, and, then, and then the rest of the book compares that to how uh, the Spanish interpreted the Chile sensation. Lovely. Which varied greatly, but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, and that's what you call, I think, the 
the poetics of fire in 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 this section. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay, uh, Victor, uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for ten years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we are back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Krishnandu Ray talking with Victor Valle about uh, his article Towards the Poetics of Chile in Another Mexico in the newest issue of Gastronomica, which just came out in spring uh, 2023 and is available uh, uh online and at the UC Press. So returning to your uh, article, Victor, uh, you sketch out, this is the section where you sketch out uh, a prehistory of uh, Mesoamerican hunter-gatherers domesticating uh, wild Mm -hmm. capsicums. Could you sketch it a little bit? In this article, I don't go into as much detail as I do in my book, but basically I'm trying to give the reader a sense that Around 7,000 years ago, uh, people, now we think that, uh, that uh, the domestication of Chile begins around 7,000 years ago in northeastern, uh, central, oh, in, in the, let me say it again, in eastern central Mexico, basically that part where the state of Oaxaca, the, the eastern part of the state of Oaxaca touches the state of Morelos and Veracruz in those mountains, and this is a mountain terrain, uh, in the Sierra Mixteca, I believe it's called, La La Cañada region, I think, if I remember correctly. And in that region, you know, you find the oldest words uh, for chilies in the Otomanguean languages. Zapotec, Mixtec, those are considered Otomanguean languages. And they have the oldest words for chili. They also found the greatest genetic uh, variability there. And usually, I'm trying, I think Vavilov, the Russian the- scientist, talked about that where you, f- in areas where you find the greatest genetic variability of a species, that's probably where that species got its start. They did that with apples in the Caucasus Mountains, I believe. And so uh, when they began to do the genetic uh, study of, of that region, they found that this was the area, too, where you had the oldest words and the most genetic variability. So he said, ah, this is probably where it started. And so there's no clear line to say, oh, at such a date they had domesticated the, uh, these chilies. We just know that the process begins around 7,000 years ago, maybe even older. Uh, and, uh, and 
uh, and that's what, and this is during a time in Mesoamerica where all these other domestications are in progress. A little further north is, north is Tehuacan, where they thought Chile had started being domesticated, but it turns out not. Uh, but there you have the domestication of the grasses that become maize and squashes and other things. And you have this whole array of plants uh, that are being domesticated, uh, you know, uh, slowly over time, which eventually end up giving this sort of suite of, of uh, cultivars that are changed the world. I mean, uh, if you just, to put it mildly, if just maize alone is a, now a source of a multi-million dollar corn growing industry, tomatoes, uh, you know, all these other plants, papayas, uh, you know, <laughs> there's a the list. I think they, they have estimated that as many 61 cultivars from the Western Hemisphere are now being, uh, uh, or 61% of the cultivars being grown in the world now are uh, could be traced back to the Western Hemisphere. So there's so many plants, quinoa, potatoes, uh, sweet potatoes, I mean, peanuts, it goes on and on. Uh, the list is very long. And so this is, so this is, well, with Chile, we think it starts around 7,000 years ago. You, you quote an uh, excavation analyst, I think it's Linda Perry, uh, and, and you say, you, she says, uh, you don't grow seven different kinds of chilies unless you're cooking uh, some pretty interesting stuff. And so, so like, could you, for uh, me and my listeners, what are some of these interesting stuff? Well, that's the thing is that early on you have, just from from a sort of cooking point of view, you have chilies used in a green stage, fresh, raw. Others are green but roasted. Others are soaked and re- are dried and then rehydrated and then uh, mixed with other ingredients. And, you know, uh, basically the basis of so much cooking in Mexico is using dry chili. In Mexico, that's one of the things that uh, there's a lot of attention to pairing combinations of chilies or other chilies with other foods uh, that are, you know, that, that will go well. And there's so this process of testing what combinations were good together, this has been going on a long time. The moles are sort of the, the classical example of those use of dry chilies with other ingredients. In my book, I show that already, although the, the moles we enjoy now are more complicated because they incorporate a lot of old world ingredients, even then at that time, they were already pretty sophisticated recipes. They didn't have almonds, for example, but they had other nuts. So this process uh, of, of experimentation, mixing and matching, uh, what had been going on for a long time. And this is what astounded Linda Perry when she's talking about what they're finding in the, in the, in the middens. Uh, and just because you didn't have Cuisinart's uh, doesn't mean, uh, you know, you can have very simple technology, but very sophisticated ideas. And this is one of the things that the, the recent archaeology of the West of the Americas is turning out over and over again, that a lot of things were done. City states were created, uh, uh, a, a very complex agriculture was created with simple tools. So, and this is the thing. And so, and the other, there, I guess you might say in the past, there was a bias to assuming that if you didn't use highly complex technology, uh, whatever you were doing had to be very simple as well. And it turns out, no, that, that's not the way it works. That's excellent. And I think the last section, uh, you call it capsaicin-induced uh, synesthesia. And you write, and I quote you here, 
Uh, few other art forms are as thoroughly synesthetic as the dining experience. End quote. Uh, what are you arguing against here? Well, uh, one of the, in the background here, and this uh, I'll make it explicit in the book, is that for a long time in, in Western, uh, I would say it's changed in the last hundred, it's been changing in the last hundred years. But, you know, since Kant and Hegel, and even before that, there was a tendency to view uh, the culinary experience as ephemeral, as trivial, as too facile. Kant sort of thought of uh, of uh, you know, culinary pleasure as too too sweet. You might say is uh, uh, is too is not very deep. And then Hegel was saying, well, you can't if you can't save uh, the art form, it's too ephemeral to really be considered art. And so here I'm sort of calling that into question. Uh, one of the things that I found in researching this book is that when I wanted to, when I was still laboring under an older idea of aesthetics, I found that in Western art theory and Western art history, you know, going back to the 18th century to Briand Savaran and those cats, uh, they were talking about uh, the culinary experience within the confines of the the, the, the basic taste, sweet, sour, sweet, sour, salty, uh, so forth. They had no accounting for piquancy. That was sort of on the margins of what they were talking about. They were using pepper, of course, but it wasn't. It, it didn't figure into their idea of what uh, great food was. And so I said, I, I like that because it basically forced me to start all over again and look at the you know the culinary experience from another perspective. So that's basically what I'm talking about. And I'm sort of arguing there's a ghost there, you might say. And I'm there is an argument implied there, yes. And so I've sort of that's that's what I'm talking about. And and that's the section you also quote, I think, Tim Morton and Walter Benjamin. Uh 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 how are you bringing them in? Why? Well one of the things and Timothy Morton makes this clear earlier is that you know, gender studies and feminist theory really made important gains when we, and during the cultural studies period, during that time, they made important gains uh, by talking about embodied experience. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, in, in the performing arts, uh, they're also talking about embodiment, performativity. And so those two strains uh, offer important insights so that if we want to talk about the culinary experience as art, we have to sort of get away from the visual. The visual is part of the cuisine, which you, and that's one of the concerns of Western art theory is called mimesis, you know, holding a mirror up to the world. And much Western art is concerned with that. And it's produced great art. It's, it's, I'm not saying mimesis or the mimetic is, is dead or whatever. But when it comes to an art form like eating, uh, that is not the best way to approach it. Instead, we need to talk, talk about it is how we feel, and we have to have a language about our bodies. And that's why that brings back into the neuroscience. Well, we need a precise language of what our bodies are going through. And that's that sense of being enveloped in an experience, even though there's no cloud that you can see over a person at, at a dining table having a great meal, uh, uh, there is a heightened sense. Uh, we would sort of the really good food brings us back into our bodies. Uh, thinking about the the dining experience in another way, as a uh, as we need a language to talk about. Well, how do I feel my body now? How am I being embodied now? How does the flavor of the food give me a different body from the one I usually think about? 
or from the idea of performance, from the people who are cooking the food and presenting the food, how they are part of a, a performance that leads to this altered sense of embodiment in the dinner guest. So that was the, 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 the insights I gathered from Timothy Morton's work. I thought that, that was really important. I think uh, those ideas have been floating around in art circles, but they hadn't been clearly applied to the dining experience. People were talking ballet and other f- art forms, but they weren't saying, well, how does it connect to food? And to me, what was interesting about chili, it's so unambiguous. <laughs> It's so in your face. I said, oh, this is the perfect one to talk about it because, uh, you know, it can produce all kinds of interesting effects. It can be very subtle or it can be very bold, but it's not uh, it's not ambiguous. It's it's very much uh, present and unavoidable, you might say. Now, uh, the other thing uh, that was interesting here, talking about synesthesia, you know, using uh, one sense to describe another sense. I could taste the music, for example. Well, we don't taste music with our tongues. But in, in the chili experience, you're feeling pain, stimulation, all these different experiences. And you're and you're and they you do that because the nerve endings, the TRPV1 that we have in our each of our taste buds are also present throughout our body. These are these are receptors that have to do with how we feel things to touch. So in a sense, What's happening when you're tasting your food, you're also touching it. And that's sort of a mixture of two different senses of taste and touch. And I said, well, you know, and this, by the way, goes on with other foods as well. So, but with, with, with chili eating, it's so obvious. It's so, you know, it's unavoidable, you know. That's lovely, Victor. Uh, I, I really both enjoyed the piece and uh, enjoyed uh, listening to you today articulate the complexity and the subtlety of your argument. So my last question, um, because we're running out of time, is what what is the next stage of this project? I Well, first I need a rest. <laughs> but uh, I'm not sure. I, had a stu- I, did, I did a presentation uh, uh, last year to students at Cal Poly. And one of the students who was an Asian student, I think she was Chinese-American, she said, well, aren't you going to do Asia? Because what I told the students during that, that lecture is that the, the two cuisines uh, that have a really long history of talking about ecology and food in the Western hemisphere and in, and in China, uh, the problem was is that they had been overlooked when people were talking about eco-aesthetics is because that vast knowledge had not been collated. That argument is made by a Chinese uh, theorist uh, and recently and he said, but, you know, what needs to be done is that that other body of knowledge needs to be collated. So I'm sure right now there are Chinese uh, 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 theorists or uh, scholars collating that, you know, uh, ancient Chinese knowledge of the relationship of food, farming, uh, culinary art, and ecology. And, and, that, and they said that's what needed to be done. And I realized, well, that's what I had been doing for the Western Hemisphere. So... Uh, I would think, I don't think I should do it, but I think somebody should do it. That next step, there should be a, a, a book about Chile in Asia and in India. You know, those are places are where, but that process has to be accompanied by a collation process of organizing uh, the knowledge. Uh, for example, in the Chinese literature, it's all very practical. They're not talking in terms of art theory the way, you know, we the West would. So it's not that they don't have knowledge of it, it's not organized in the same way. And so if people were to do it, 
I would think that they would have to organize that knowledge, collate it, and then sort of go back and say, okay, we go back, you know, 3000 BC, and this is what we're getting. I mean, and we get this picture emerging uh, from this society. And so I would think that Asia, which was very interested in capsicum, it, it, it embraced it in so many ways, that would be a whole area to study. Now, I don't know if I'm going to do it. Uh, you know, I, I, I might want to go back, but I think, you know, I think somebody should do it. And, and uh, I would like to help anybody start that process because I'm very curious as to how, uh, how, you know, Asian societies begin to think about ecology and how they talk about it. It's very necessary, by the way, where, you know, it, when people want to talk, when people want to buy into the question of, of dealing with climate change, Every culture has to have its its doorway into that discussion, and I think one of my reasons for doing it was to give Latinos in the U.S. their own sort of pathway to the uh, to the discussions on climate change that come from their own experiences and from their own knowledge. You know, where they're not completely dependent on the scientific literature, where they have their own perspective and their own way of being in dialogue with the science. I'm not ignoring the science, but uh, it, that, the science isn't the only kind of knowledge that needs to come out in, in this process. You know, a lot of the issues that deal with climate change are ultimately social. They're social problems. They're not. They're not just questions of science. So that's. I'm. I'm. I hope that there's a process that goes on in Asia talks about this. This is lovely, Victor. Thank you uh, for joining us. And listeners can read the full piece in Gastronomica, the Journal uh, for Food Studies. Issue number 23.1. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. We'll be back next week to speak with scholars, uh, Jeffrey Pilcher, uh, Patrick uh, Chabonnet, and Kelsey Kilgore about the Mexican roots of an American candy, which is fudge, and the process of recreating historical recipes. Subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes this season. Thank you. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.